If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. After the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism in East Germany, tens of thousands of Stasi officers suddenly found themselves out of work. For decades, the state security service had been a pervasive and terrifying force in the lives of millions of East German people. But what would happen to them now? In his new book, The Grey Men, the ex-FBI agent Ralph Hope tracks down the former Stasi officers showing how they reinvented themselves over the following decades and rarely faced the consequences of their actions. He was joined in conversation by BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. To begin with, could you please explain for our listeners who exactly the Stasi were, what what their origins were and what kind of activities they undertook in East Germany? Yes, the Stasi were the secret police organisation, the Ministry for State Security for East Germany. They had their roots at the very beginning of the Cold War after the Soviets left Germany and uh, they needed an internal security service of their own. So they were formed basically with the model of the Cheka, which was the predecessor for the Soviet KGB. As a matter of fact, the 
Stasi or the Ministry for State Security shield was fashioned by uh, the Minister of State Security to be similar to that of the Cheka. And so they that was their what they took their beginnings from, and they built on it and actually quickly exceeded the capabilities of the Soviet services. And so and the Stasi have a reputation as being one of the most skilled and perhaps also one of the most feared secret police services. Do you think that's fair? Well, they were the, the most per- pervasive. They had the most penetration. Their role was uh, in a country about the size of Florida, or actually smaller in Florida, was to be mostly inwardly directed against their own citizens. And they functioned as a prosecutor. They had a military wing. Uh, they had complete reign over the actions that they deemed fit. Their sole purpose was to protect and preserve the leftist communist dictatorship that ran uh, the GDR, as uh, East Germany was called. And if you fell foul of the Stasi, what kind of things might they do to you? Well, it's interesting because many, many people in East Germany, probably most people, assumed they were under observation by the Stasi. Because the Stasi had 100,000 people at the end of 1989, that is a good reason for that. Uh, If a citizen attracted the attention, they had a whole range of things they could do from grabbing you off the street, uh, taking you to a, a prison, at which uh, the fact that you were even arrested was a state secret. Or uh, they could do uh, uh, other things, such as prevent you from getting into a university, prevent you from getting a job, prevent you from traveling abroad, and uh, a whole range of things designed to basically control the individual citizen. And that's the unprecedented thing about the Stasi, is that because they had 40 years to perfect this, Whereas the Gestapo uh, operated for 12 years, some people like to compare the two. There really isn't a comparison. Uh, the Gestapo, of course, were horrible, the uh, supervisor of the Holocaust. The Stasi, when they uh, began, uh, you know, within a few short years uh, after they began, they quickly exceeded the uh, capabilities of the Gestapo. And then as far as personnel, they doubled that capability every 10 years. So uh, there was little that could be done in East Germany uh, uh, by anybody that would not, at some level, be observed either directly by the Stasi or by one of their uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of informers that they call unofficial employees. Um, and that, part, that is part of the true, uh, one of the uh, fortunate tragedies of this is the numbers of people that quickly were turned against their own family their own neighbors, and how easy the Stasi were able to do that. And so how many people would we say were victims of the Stasi over the four decades or so of the GDR? It's estimated about 400,000, and uh, about 280,000 were imprisoned. And uh, the the 400,000 is uh, a number that is people that weren't in prison but were victimized in other ways. Likely, it's much higher than that. Uh, Germans, and even today, probably especially today, don't like to talk about it. And uh, so if you were a victim, uh, if you had your life diverted from your dream of going to the university and instead had to work as an auto mechanic for your entire career, you may not even know or you may not want to admit that you were a victim of the Stasi. 
And so it's very difficult to quantify, but those numbers, I think, are uh, a good starting point. And, and this is quite a, a high proportion of the population, isn't it? Because East Germany didn't have a, a huge population to start with. No, in the in the uh, the late '80s, I think it was around 16 million. Um, uh, again, that's comparable to the population of Florida. Um, and if you look at the uh, the number of offices and the number of people they had uh, directed inwardly toward these these 16 million people, it's pretty overwhelming. Uh, they also had a foreign intelligence arm that uh, did operate outside of East Germany and throughout Europe, and uh, and uh, that the actions of that arm called uh, that they are called the HVA is another quite intriguing story uh, on uh, not only what they did, headed by uh, a well-known person uh, named Marcus Wolf, who was commonly known as the Man Without a Face to what they did after the wall came down to preserve their networks. And that part of that is what's included in this book. So now, I guess we come to the pivotal moment in your book, which is 1989, 1990. The Berlin Wall comes down. Germany is united. What happens to the Stasi at this point? Well, first, I think that in many cases, they had seen something coming for quite a while. Uh, Money had been transferred out of East Germany to various places, most of which has never been found. Uh, we're talking of, of hundreds of millions of uh, in Deutschmarks, but uh, also in other currencies. And uh, once the wall fell, the most ambitious of them, which uh, they had many very educated, ambitious people, immediately uh, rolled into other jobs. In some cases, entire uh, sections of the Stasi uh, were rolled into creating commercial enterprises in Germany, some of which are still operating now. And Many of the files that were never found or were destroyed contained highly incriminating information, not only about people in Germany, but throughout Europe. And that was also a point of leverage that they successfully used because people continued to be afraid of them. And I think to some degree, there's still that fear in Germany and throughout Europe. So as your book details, so many former members of the Stasi end up having successful careers in many ways. Was this because people didn't know about their past or were prepared to overlook it? Well, you know, it's interesting because in, you know, in my time in Eastern Europe, I, whenever I was uh, in Germany and I brought this topic up about uh, the, the question that started all this for me, it was a question because I'm trained as an investigator. And my question was, what happened to these guys? What, did they, what are they doing? And so I asked a lot of people, a lot of Germans, this question. And when I asked regular citizens, people that you know, I would come, I would come across in Germany, you know, I would frequently uh, get a response of a look of quiet desperation. When I asked a person in government or somebody who is a Stasi expert in Germany, the response was more like embarrassed silence. There were no answers, so uh, that's uh, why I decided to try to get answers. And there's a lot of questions in the beginning of this book, and then there are some answers that really aren't going to be satisfying to uh, many people in Germany who don't know some of this information uh, that's laid out here. Generally, uh, over the time since the wall came down, there would occasionally be somebody exposed, and it'd be in the newspaper. But there was never an organized effort to determine you know, how many of these people went on to stay in government, 
How many of these people are high-level corporate uh, 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 officers? How many are in positions of trust? It's not necessarily a problem if one of the 100,000 Stasi members is working in a particular job, but it may very well be a problem if there's no transparency and if that person is in a position of trust, perhaps dealing with victims, perhaps uh, dealing with uh, foreign policy, perhaps uh, being a police officer. You know, many worked in the police. Many worked in the Stasi archives. Several still do to this day. And just despite Stasi attempts to destroy the records, there are records out there, aren't there, detailing who actually was in the Stasi? It's very interesting because uh, when the, uh, the wall came down, uh, the Stasi operated very meticulously, but in a pre-digital age. That's why there were 112 kilometers of paper files. Today, those files with the flick of the wrist would all be gone. But then they, all they had was shredders. And when they started shredding, they shredded thousands of bags of records. And they also, uh, the foreign intelligence arm, the HVA, successfully shredded their own personnel files. And they did so under a ruse of assisting the new government to uh, you know, go through files and, and such. And they were continued to shred well into a year after uh, they, they no longer existed. Unfortunately, in the case of the HVA, there was another roster or list of identifying Stasi employees, one that they wouldn't have any uh, reason to know about. It was something used by the Stasi people who maintained the records to uh, locate personnel files and such. And that file uh, was then found, which contained the names of every Stasi officer who was employed at the time the wall came down. That and and uh, also that list was then converted into a file which was distributed at first in Germany and until it was forced underground by the German privacy laws. And um, despite the suffering that the Stasi inflicted on so many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, am I right to say that virtually none of them were ever prosecuted? I tried to uh, determine how many of the uh, Stasi officers were actually served jail. There were uh, many, many investigations open after uh, Germany was reunified. So some people had reason for hope. Um, there were very few prosecutions actually filed, and there were even fewer convictions for a Stasi officer doing something as part of his employment. Of those convictions, I found only one case of a Stasi officer who served jail time because of something that he did as a Stasi officer. Even the head of the Stasi, uh, Eric Milke, he was convicted not of anything to do with his creation of the Stasi, his, his 40 years of ruling as what the Germans uh, knew him as the master of fear. He was convicted of a murder of two police officers that occurred in the 1930s in which he was involved that was before the Stasi was even created. So um, I think that most Germans don't know those statistics because they're not easy to find and they're not discussed. And when they are discussed, there's embarrassment. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They can be um, sued. They can be fined for making some claim that they know to be true because they were there, but maybe they don't have a piece of paper. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Do you think that part of the reason why so many ex-Stasi people have just been able to carry on their lives was that the new German state was trying to bring the two sides of the country together and didn't want to stir up old wounds or just wanted to sort of move beyond the past? Well, you know, uh, and, and when they had that unification agreement, it was uh, quite amazing to be able to unify two countries in basically a year. I mean, it was unprecedented. In the rush to do that, there was a lot of things in the unification agreement that were later, I guess, discovered. Um, and one of those was that uh, if you had been trained by the Stasi to be a lawyer at the Stasi University, which was in Potsdam, that you could practice law in the unified Germany. The only problem was is that the legal training at the Stasi University was not designed to teach the Stasi officers how to represent clients. It was designed to teach them how to protect the state and how to protect the Ministry for State Security. So thousands of lawyers were unleashed following this that undoubtedly many citizens dealt with not having any idea that they were former Stasi officers. And uh, the other big thing in the unification agreement that it was uh, a clause that said that any prosecutions of Stasi officers would be based on the laws of East Germany, not the laws of the uh, unified Germany. 
And that effectively is called by many as a get out of jail free card because the legal system of the uh, German Democratic Republic, the GDR, was designed to facilitate the Stasi being able to, to do anything at any time without any oversight. So uh, many of those prosecutions were dead in the water uh, before they even started because of that. And I guess the obvious parallel, though there are many differences, would be with Nazi Germany and what happened to the perpetrators of Nazi Germany following the Second World War. Do you think there are any interesting parallels or comparisons to be made there? Well, there, there are interesting comparisons to be made. One is you have to remember that the Nazis... Uh, since World War II, they have never been, you know, portrayed favorably. They have never assimilated wholly into uh, society. There were many cases of where they remained and became employed within the government in Germany, but uh, they never succeeded in the amount of sheer penetration against their own citizens. Uh, the Stasi trained two generations of Germans to please the state over 40 years, four decades. So you have to look at what they did and, and what their impact was on those two generations. And uh, I think that's where the comparison fails because, of course, the Nazis, uh, you know, they during the war and they certainly helped they propped up the Nazi regime. Many of the Nazis some of the high-level people seem to pop up in German politics and later in life. And that's what frustrated people in Germany, especially West Germany, during the decades following the beginning of the Cold War. It was that hope that that wouldn't happen with the Stasi. It was that hope uh, that many of them had that this would be a real reckoning that they were disappointed on because there was no reckoning with the Stasi. As a matter of fact, the Stasi went into an offensive mode after the wall came down and created new organizations to make use of the privacy laws and to make use of and hide behind the very things that were designed to protect the citizens of the unified Germany. And as your book also shows, the Stasi have actively sought to challenge the historical record and, I suppose, redefine what the Stasi were in a much more positive light. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in, uh, when I started uh, asking the questions over a period of several years and, and actually up until I was quite surprised, even in 2019, how active the organizations were. And we're talking close to 30 years later. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the image that I think that the Stasi wanted to project at the end of the Cold War was, you know, they're just a bunch of old pensioners and they did their job for their country. And they, they just, they went off, they disappeared. Well, that's not the case. Most of them were very young, actually, at that time, the ones that were employed. More than half were, uh, I think, in their 30s. They continued being very adept in using the tools given to them. And I had one conversation with a Stasi officer and we discussed how, what they would have done in today's world with Facebook and uh, Twitter and all that. And their, the immediate response was, we would have adapted quite easily, I expect, was what I was told. And I believe that to be true because what the Stasi did then with paper files and knocking on doors is much easier to do now if you have the same laws and if you have the free reign. That, I think, is what everybody needs to contemplate. 
And were there any ex-Stasi who came forward and either apologised or denounced what the Stasi had done? I'm not aware of any. I mean, they, they maintained a very proud, uh, and they still do maintain a, a very proud uh, uh, you know, attitude towards their career. Uh, you know, in 2018, they were preparing for the next anniversary celebration of the formation of the Stasi. Uh, and they have celebrations. So, I mean, it's it's interesting because they didn't just go separate ways and they didn't just uh, fade away. Now, to be sure, many of the Stasi are receiving pensions. As of 2017, over 65,000 former Stasi officers were being paid a pension by Unified Germany, and they're living all over the world approximately 350 million euros per year. So that was a fact also that was surprising to me. It was surprising to me how active they remained. It was surprising to me how much they're still fighting to revise history. And um, it's, it's surprising to me how little pushback there is in Germany now. And I think that um, some people still have a fear of, of you know, maybe their own past being discovered. And others, I think, are embarrassed. And on the other side of the divide, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the victims groups who are trying to expose the Stasi for what they were. Yeah, you know, initially uh, there were a number of victims groups in the 90s. Some of them still exist. They've been consolidated. Um, But as the victims age, two things are happening. One is um, the system in Germany is uh, there's a disincentive for them to speak up because they can be um, sued, they can be fined for making some claim that they know to be true because they were there, but maybe they don't have a piece of paper. Um, and uh, the other thing is, is that after uh, the, uh, uh, the privacy laws became in the last uh, five years or so, even more onerous because of Facebook and things like that, that if they post something about their experience on their own Facebook page, which I mentioned to some people in the book that have done that, there's a, a government bureaucracy that, that will entertain a complaint by a Stasi officer. And it's very onerous when you've been victimized. You've been trying to recover from being victimized your whole life. And then when you want to speak up, you get victimized again. So, uh, you know, th- those privacy laws have been far better at protecting the privacy of the former Stasi officers and the politicians of the SED, the, the East German Communist Party, than uh, protecting any victims. And actually, coming on to the SED, I'd be interested in your thoughts about how the Stasi are viewed today by the modern German left. Well, of course, the left party in Germany is the legal heir to the SED Communist Party, which changed its name a couple times uh, after the, uh, the law came down. Um, and uh, the, I know for a fact, uh, because I observed Stasi officers actively supporting current members of the left party in politics in political campaign. I was standing in a Stasi office and I observed that. Uh, so, so they are still very involved, and 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 uh, you know the left party in Germany, as it is in uh, the uh, the European left, is on the rise. Uh, and I had multiple people tell me that 
it's difficult to discuss these issues in uh, Germany, and uh, because it's um, it's easy to criticize the Nazi Germany. They can do that. Anybody can do that all day long, and, and they criticize the fascists. But the minute they criticize communism or criticize the GDR, there are organized efforts to silence them still. And that includes threats, telephonic threats made. That includes groups of former Stasi uh, officers showing up uh, to heckle people. Um, and, you know, this was 2019, 2020, um, that that's happening. And that, I think, was surprising to me, that after this long, the system hadn't dealt with those issues in efforts to preserve historical fact and clarity. clarity is extremely important when you have young people growing up who don't hear much about in school about the Stasi or East Germany or communism. If you don't face your history, however uncomfortable it is, it may very well repeat itself, not only in Germany, but elsewhere in Europe. And, you know, even in the United States, there is a a certain amount of of kind of reinvention towards uh, communism or, or attempts at reinvention towards communism. And um, you know, if, if you don't have historical clarity and if you don't have the victim's accounts in front of you, it's easy for that to be shaded. And that's a danger. And just one last question from me. Unlike a lot of people that we speak to, your background is working for the FBI for a number of years rather than being a historian. Do you think that your professional experience gives you a, a additional insights into this kind of story? Well, you know, um, my job for you know, more than 25 years was to talk to people and ask questions to, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for historians, um, you know, and, and what they do. And, but my focus was to look at this as I was conducting an investigation and to try to talk to the right people, sit down with some Stasi officers, sit down with victims and, and, and actually get my questions answered. And, and it wasn't until one question that was answered caused me to have four or five other questions that, you know, I realized that this is a story that must be told, particularly in a couple of the heroes that I mentioned uh, uh, in the story. One in particular, Herbertus Kanab, who has been fighting the Stasi for 30 years since the wall fell in Germany as a German. And, uh, you know, at great personal risk. So um, I think this is a story that needed to be told, not just for the Germans, not just for the Europeans, but really for the Americans and, and people throughout the world who uh, are wondering are, if they should believe people when they say that, uh, you know, the Stasi or communists weren't that bad, that the numbers of victims were overblown. It's just very important to, to keep a clear focus. Okay, Ralph, that's been really, really fascinating. Um, is there anything else you think we should have talked about that I didn't ask you about? Well, one of the areas I mentioned is the uh, 21st century Stasi, what it would be like. And that's a section of the book. And in that, um, I talk about what uh, China is doing right now. And they have, in effect, uh, created a internet Berlin Wall. And uh, it's I think it's something that to some degree, will uh, give you an idea of what the Stasi would have done and given the chance. 
And also the communist Chinese government remain very closely allied with the left organizations in Europe. Uh, they recently provided a statue to the town of Trier in Germany to celebrate the birthday of Karl Marx, who, of course, was the founder of global communism, uh, the German. And they have been using technology to uh, make it much easier to control and uh, confine their citizens. So the Stasi would easily have made use of those tools. And it's very possible that had they survived, many of the Stasi officers felt that they could have survived if they, if the government, their government, had not lost the political will. And Eric Milke, they had the Stasi, famously uh, said when he, when he was in serving prison that had he received an order, there's no doubt in his mind that there would be a GDR today. And there is no GDR today, but I think it bears uh, all of us uh, to focus on where tyranny could come from and where it could spread. Uh, and it could spread uh, faster than we may think. Even in some parts of Europe today, it's considered cool to have been a Stasi officer. And you never hear that reference a Nazi uh, uh, officer. But, you know, and so those are differences that people have to look out for because this ultimately this is a book about the present. And, uh, I, I, you know, if people, when people read that last section, those last chapters, I think that's what I would like to leave them is that um, it's very important to look clearly and to remember clearly and to remember who the victims were and who the perpetrators were. That was Ralph Hope. His book, The Grey Men, Pursuing the Stasi into the Present, is out now published by One World. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest episode in our series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. Mm-hmm.